Oh, hey, this is me, Hecklina. I just wanted to remind you about my show, The Golden Girls Christmas Episodes. We are live, finally, in 2021, back at the Victoria Theater for 25 shows. We run from November 26th all the way until December 23rd. Two brand new episodes. You can go to thegoldengirlslive.com to get your tickets. Thank you, and thank you for being a friend. Everybody, welcome back to Drag Time with Hecklina. It's me, Hecklina. We have somebody very, very special joining us on the podcast today. But first, if you love us, please show it. Tell anyone you can about our podcast, Drag Time with Hecklina. Go visit our website, dragtimewithhecklina.com, or join our Facebook group, Facebook page, that is. Um, that's right. It's called Drag Time with Hecklina. And thanks, everyone, for all the love notes. Now, today's very special guest is an author, journalist, model, creator, cultural curator, and icon in her own right. She is credited with influencing the glam rock aesthetic of the 1970s, and I want to talk to her a lot about that. She has penned several books, some on the topics of sex and sexuality, and many of you may not know this. She was once even a roving reporter for the Transgender and Drag Monthly Frock Magazine, which I had the privilege of uh, being interviewed for. We want to ask her all about that and more. Please give it up for the legendary Angie Bowie. Hi, Angie. Hello, everyone. <laughs> you. Are, are you joining us from Los Angeles? No, from Tucson in Arizona. Okay, so you've lived there a long time, right? Yes. In Tucson? Okay. Yes. Um, and uh, and uh, you were born in Cyprus. And um, is it true you consider yourself, and I want to pronounce this right, a Cypriot or a Cypriot? A Cypriot. Well, yes, when you're born in a place, I think you, I was, you know, born to American parents, so I was always an American citizen. But but, but you, I, yeah, you, you were raised all around, right? Yeah, I just considered that I was very fortunate to have been born in Cyprus, and therefore, when I felt like I wanted to adopt any of the characteristics of being Cypriot, I did. Uh, so I, 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 I want to get back to your upbringing a little bit now. It's, it's kind of a legend that you, you, when you met David, he was still a hippie. You had this glam rock aesthetic that you brought into the relationship. You, did you consciously do that? Did you have... No. This anti, uh, an anti. No, 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 no. That's all wrong. It's all no. wrong. Okay. That's wrong. I was uh, just as much of a hippie as David. Okay. We were both but, hippies. Um, you know, that was fine. But I also was very theater, and I thought that everything dressed in jeans and then going out on stage was a cop out. Right. So it didn't take long for me to realize that David, and this is not an insult, this is just the truth, uh, you know, you get lazy. 
right. just want to be able to go and strum your guitar and, you know, <laughs> do, it, do yes. it at a folk club and, you know, uh-huh. be cool and chill. Mm-hmm. I, I was yawning. I mean, let me tell you, because the songs were fun, but I could see it as much more, you know, and I kept talking to David about it. And, and he said, yes. And how and when and where, kind of. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Right. And all I could say to him was, well, we better um, get Mercury behind you and and move forward and see what we can do so that we have both the opportunity and um, the wherewithal financially to right. make the show look how we want it to look. And uh, fortunately, I had been able to secure the Mercury deal. And because Mercury was associated with Phillips Records, then I was able to go into Phillips Records and negotiate a deal for some of the tapes that the boys had done down in the basement. And they were, we called that bad hype. And we gave the tapes to Phillips and Phillips gave us the money for a huge sound system. Okay. And was, so yeah. Basically, what I was doing is I was finessing what we needed with what we already had. And we had the tapes that had been done down in the basement, the rehearsal tapes with the band. So it really didn't, it, it was, it was, it was smooth sailing, to be quite honest with you. It moved forward fairly quickly. And we went up to um, the Sombrero Club. And I said to David, I said, you know, you're always uh, wanting to be a bigger star. And yet what really sells record is dance music. And you're down at this, you know, folk club. Uh, and it was actually, they liked to, to call it a folk, uh, no, a um, arts lab, the arts lab. Uh-huh. Mary Finnegan and David called it growth, which I <laughs> extremely, you know, <laughs> growth, the onslaught yes. mechanism. So anyway, I mean, that was fine. But then once David got to the sombrero and he heard what I was saying, which he did very clearly, and Freddie Baretti was there, who was a wonderful designer. And every night that you went to the sombrero, you could see him in another outfit. So you didn't have to wait to figure out he was a designer if you get my drift. Exactly, yes. It was sort of in-your-face obvious. Right, so, right. Um, I thought to myself, wait a minute, what about if we had like an exclusive tailor? Instead of having to pay a fortune, what if we had the designer and we paid the money to him and for the fabric. That was Freddie? Yeah. And I realized uh-huh. I had a winner. You know yeah. what I mean? And oh, yeah. So well, I moved Freddie down to our house in Beckenham and his girlfriend, Daniela, who helped me with Zoe. And Freddie started, you know, just sewing up a storm. And I went all over the place. In Liberties, I went to Petticoat Lane. I went everywhere buying fabric and getting all the kinds of stuff that I thought would be like. And I realized at that point, now we can say that what you said originally, the introduction was true. 
Mm-hmm. At that point, I became more glam than anyone could ever have been. Yeah. Because, you know, I was at school in Switzerland for seven years. I studied couture. And because Freddie was so already on it with that making an outfit every night for going to dance at the sombrero, um, we just, it made the whole profile, the whole idea of, of David and the band not only looking different, but, you know, really kind of projecting a whole different atmosphere. Right. Um, and I thought that was a worthwhile thing to do. I've had a terrible experience at college in America when I had an affair with a girl because I didn't deal with my dad that I wouldn't sleep with men until after I was 18, yada, yada, bullshit. So <laughs> it got really convoluted and a problem when I realized that they expected me to uh, like go to an institute to be cured of lesbianism. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. My father had already explained to me very carefully. He said, never allow yourself to fall into the mental health client list. You will forever in your life be forbidden to do things because of that. I thought, oh, fuck that. In that case, I went back to uh, Cyprus. Yeah. I just got my suitcases and whoop, I was out of Connecticut College for Women. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I was going to I was going to ask you about that experience. But, you know, so much, you, you know, I'm, I'm just basing all my questions on things that I've read about you and David. And so much of it is legendary. So it's so amazing to get this perspective from you, because I've heard from people like uh, Jane County, Boy George, that they all say we all looked to Angie as well as, as much as we looked to David for inspiration in that era. Um, but there was a long, I mean, it wasn't overnight success. There was a long period, wasn't there, in Haddon Hall where you guys had no money and you were struggling? Or can, can you set not, the record straight on that? No, not really. Um, mm-hmm. we, we didn't have any money to per se. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to talk about big chunks, but mm-hmm. we had enough to, um, David had. We did shows, and then apart from doing shows, we had some advances from Mercury. Mm-hmm. weren't very enormous, but Phillips became vested in their Mercury um, association, and so I was able to kind of whoop some money together so that uh, we we were able to move forward. With things that had to be done. We got the sound system. We got a truck. We've got enough stuff in the recording studio downstairs to keep producing product. And as long as we were producing product, we had something to, we could leverage. You know what I mean? Right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. You, you were, uh, you, David was producing lots of music as we found out when he kept releasing, they kept releasing these, you know, demos and stuff later on of the songs and uh, there must have been constant activity and I'm sure things that didn't make the cut. Yeah, um, well, a lot of it, actually, uh, I'm happy to say that by popular sort of vote, stuff that I think the only thing that I ever really 
wasn't particular. Oh God, now I've said this. I've opened up a can of worms because <laughs> the title of it. Sorry, I'll, I'll be with you in a minute. It's something about. Well, I, obviously, I can't remember it. So the search engine has gone into the mode of it'll come to me. <laughs> And That's I'll spit fine. it out when you're in the middle of telling me something. Okay, well, the, I, 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 I want to talk to you about, uh, I, had a, I had a conversation with you once about, so David was famously afraid of flying. And is this, he, he toured uh, by driving a limousine around and you guys traveled through the desert and you had a, a UFO, uh, is, this an, is it an antenna to search for UFO or alien life while you were driving around? Well, is this true? Really. We, had a, we had a few items, which this was because it actually didn't happen in the desert. It happened just outside of Detroit. Oh, wow. And um, you have to understand, people who ran the footage of the UFOs, which were played on evening news in Detroit, all of the radio station people, personnel, and TV station personnel were fired for allowing that UFO footage to be aired. So it was kind of um, a big deal. And we got to Cobo Hall. We got to the dressing room and we turned the TV on. And that was the last time they showed the footage. It was like the, you know, before you do the sound check, before you go on and do the show, mm -hmm. like the evening news from six to seven. And when we got off stage and the light news was on, all the footage had been confiscated by the government. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. By the Air Force bases around Detroit and the government. Did you see oh. these UFOs? Did I see them? No, I yeah. saw I no, I saw what they had on the news. No, okay. I did not see them. Okay. Uh -huh. I mean, we had all this ability to spot and track. I yeah. we didn't do any spotting or tracking. Oh, you know? okay. But we had the ability to do it, and I don't really even know how. I don't remember now, because I'm sure I sorted it out. But um by that time I was I was getting a little Ah, it was all a bit much. You know what I mean? I'm, I like to plan. I'm a bit of a planner. And if you discombobulate my planning, which is basically a huge bed with all my books and pads and everything around and a TV remote, mm -hmm. uh, sitting in a limousine going across country with David Kareen, Stewie George, and the driver, Tony Masia, was great for two or three days, but I had no intention of doing it for more than a week. You know what I mean? They were on the road for months. Oh my! Yeah. I mean, it wasn't quite that long. I'm, I'm exaggerating. It wasn't months, but they were on the road a long time. And it's still, I, it's yeah, still a long time. Yeah, it, it wasn't for me. I, yeah, and we we went to this. We got to this one hotel and. They had magic fingers. You know those what? things you put 25 cents in? Oh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. So, <laughs> yes. so listen to this. You're not going to believe this. So there's Marion who's looking after Zoe, Zoe and me. And we're in one big, you know, one big motel room, the three of us. So Zoe says, 
You'll be having nap. And I said, well, are you tired, honey? You want to have a nap? He said, oh, yes. He said, and these will jiggle us to sleep. I, I, I said, okay. Okay. I said, now, how many quarters do you need? I thought I'd get a little mass thing in there. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Well, well, three for an hour would be good. I said, I think it's 15 minutes. I think we might need four. <laughs> uh -huh. So he gets the coins, right? And then I pass out, Marion passes out, and he's feeding the machines. <laughs> so 7.30 comes, 8.30 comes, the phone starts ringing. We can't hear it. We're like three sheets to the wind. I mean, uh -huh. worse than a hangover. Those <laughs> jigglers have knocked us out. Finally, <laughs> I heard the phone, and I got the phone, and it was Stewie, and he said, I've been banging at the door. you got to get to the show. David doesn't know what's happened to you. Are you dead? I said, no, we fell asleep. Those oh my God. magic fingers made us go to sleep. So what with all of the above, as you can imagine, being right. on the road had a lot. It needed a lot more than just seeing good shows every night. Right. Yeah. yeah that must have been exhausting. And uh, and tell me about, so there's, again, there's so much legend associated with those years with you and David. Tell me about you, because you, you mentioned that Cherry Vanilla lives out here in the desert. Tell me about, were you involved closely with Main Man, the organization? And uh, there were so many people involved in, in all of that, uh, you know, there was, of course, Tony DeFries, the manager, and then there was all the other people working at Main Man. Cherry Vanilla, she was a, an employee of Main Man, correct? Yes, yes, uh -huh. she was. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, I, can't, I don't really have anything to say about that. Yeah. They tried to steal uh, the whole idea that David and I had for a company from us, and Tony DeFries did a very good job of it. Corrine Schwab... Uh, and um, Cherry and Tony Zanetta. Mm -hmm. The only person who's honest about it is uh, Jane. Jane County's always honest and straightforward about just how much advantage they took of David. David was out there working. That's where the money was coming from. Tony yeah. didn't have a secret pot of money. Yeah. And, um, I really. I don't have anything to say about that because whatever I would say would not be particularly nice. That's fine. I mean, I, I, of course I've read all about it and I've read that. Yeah. David's money was funding everything, including record contracts for other people that never kind of went anywhere. And I think they signed uh, Iggy and the Stooges and that, that nothing ever happened with that. And, uh, and then when David did sever his contract with Tony, Tony got, uh, got to keep all the royalties. So yes, I, I'm, I am aware that, he, that Tony did rip off. David, uh, quite a bit. Uh, do you care to talk at all about, you've mentioned her a couple of times, David's notorious assistant, Corinne Schwab? No, I have nothing to say about her. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Tell me about, um, do you have any more memories of, uh, of being on the road? Any crazy tour memories that you can think of? I know it must be all kind of, a blur well, by now. The, one of the most outrageous ones was the time when they did the Jules Fisher set with Diamond Dogs. There was this hand that came out. 
and David was sitting in it, and uh, it got stuck. Well, funny, I can't begin to tell you. I thought I was going to have a car, and I was laughing so hard. <laughs> I just, I, I just, I looked down at them, and I thought, "Do you really seriously think that I can help you stage manage while I'm in the audience?" I, I can't do this, guys. I'm in the audience. I can't run down and tell you to crank that thing so he goes back up. And he, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was total madness and fun. I mean, you know, not. It, it, I don't think anyone in the audience even realized because David kept singing. The music right. band kept playing. You know what I mean? It wasn't like anything bad happened. Mm-hmm. It was just that if you knew the sort of actual, the way the hydraulics worked of the stage set, when the hand suddenly comes down and thuds to a stop and it won't go back up, you got an issue. Because David right. was kind of, he was stuck there. He couldn't get up. He couldn't get down. There was nowhere to climb. But after a while of David singing and singing, they finally managed to get it to crank up and then he could get off and, you know, come down and carry on with the song. It was, there were a lot of things that were, you know, they're the kind of show business jokes that we all laugh about. Haklina, you know, those ones that you never forget because they're highly amusing and no one gets hurt. And it's not something that makes you feel bad to talk about it. You know, it's just, it's just funny. You know, I thought, why is he sitting there? Oh, fuck me, the hand won't work. Oh. <laughs> well, it was a very it was a very ambitious, that was a very ambitious stage show. It was, almost, well, Jules Fisher was uh-huh. the bee's knees. He really uh-huh. was. And um, RCA was, I have to say, I mean, given the fact that they were still waiting for a return on their investment, they were very, very loyal and trusting and believed it would work. And it did. You know yeah. what I mean? But yeah, it, yeah. it took all that, you know, building the set, breaking the set down, moving the set across country for people to realize that what David was doing was being a visionary, but a visionary with his feet firmly planted in the ground because he managed to make visions come true for dudes and dudettes in America, in Europe, in Japan, you know. So it was it was exciting. It was fun. Don't you think that that Diamond Dogs tour influenced touring in general? Like it, it led to these elaborate concerts much later on by Madonna and people like that. Yeah, uh, of course, yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then a couple of years after the Diamond Dogs tour came this movement that spurned all of that glitter and all of that rock and roll money stuff and brought things back to basics. But even though David was part of the rock establishment by that point, he was still kind of revered by this new group of people. He survived sort of unscathed. Uh, the punk years. What, what did you think of, of the punk movement that came along? Well, I thought the punk movement was an offshoot of what we were doing because 
what we were doing was talking about, you know, there's a way to influence people into seeing that politics and treating people properly and not having to survive on a three-day week, which we had to survive in England. Yeah. They, they stopped people working five days a week so that they had enough work to be done by the whole population if nobody worked a full week. You realize how crazy this sounds. Yeah, well, things, I'm, I think things were very, very bleak in, in the UK by that point. It was. And, it, was and punk, it was bad. I mean, and, um, glam so influenced it, people, glam influenced people to kind of transcend the, the gloom and, and the grayness and try and imagine something more glamorous. And then punk was like, this is fucked, let's riot. But, but all those people, because I, I watched the Joy Division movie last night and there was a lot of, Bowie and and uh, and Iggy Pop in that and and Sid Vicious was a huge Bowie fan. I mean Bowie and the, the Bowie did influence those kids. Um, so you must have been also revered by by the punkers. Yeah, I think so because uh, I was I'm pretty um, straightforward. You know, mm. I don't really mince words, and I try to just get to the nook. Right. I like to get to the nook and not waste time. <laughs> I like that word, nook. Well, it's it's like a nut, isn't it? But it's yeah. not a nut because it's a nook. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> you know, if I can't get to the nook, I can't um, unravel it, you right. know? And um, so I was always very, I mean, because of Iggy Pop and because of Dan. County, I never felt that punk was new in my world. Mm -hmm. That they're the two greats, the two yeah. aficionados of punk. Right. So, and as I had been very close with Jane and very close in Los Angeles while Iggy was trying to get things sorted out with Tony Caprice and David to do his recording. Um, I just sort of assumed it took me a long time to kind of meet all the different people who said things. I, I adored the Sex Pistols. I mm -hmm. thought they were fabulous. But then, you know, I love political kind of from within forcing a change. Yeah. And they were such piss takers and they did it so well. And, um, their manager, what's his name? Matthew Marshall. Malcolm McLaren. Oh, thank you. I knew it was an M word. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he was, uh, he was good. He was yeah. a communicator and he managed to kind of make everything like a threat, a warning or a promise. Right. You know, and the artwork was clever and it was cohesive. And he kind of, I think Malcolm Clarence was very important to that whole thing with the original punk bands because he took the time to explain it so that the man in the street followed it. Kind of the same thing I did with glam and bisexuality because I reckoned as long as I was there to interpret and say, well, you know, let's look at it this way. 
Bisexuality means that if you have children, well, then it's not so weird that you might have other sexual preferences at certain times in your life. And I would talk so fast to get through it so that no one could argue with me. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Nobody has time to interject anything. <laughs> I just went so fast, baby. They they were like, whoa, stand back. She's coming through. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Those were, I, I mean, it's not. It's it's been said by by a couple of people that the two most important things to happen in music in the 70s were David Bowie and punk rock. Um, and and you were there, kind of in the. I mean, these these are legendary times. This is so amazing that you were you were there, and um, and I actually watched some footage of you on the old Grey Whistle Test with Mick Karn from the band Japan. Yeah, and I thought it was I thought it was fascinating. How how did that come around? How how did you get involved with Mick Karn? Well, he's a Cypriot. What do you mean? How did I get involved with Cypriots? He's a Cypriot. I didn't know of that. Of course, he's a Cypriot. You don't oh, think wow. he got that good looking being, you know, normal. He's a Cypriot. You knew him from Cyprus? No. Oh, okay. No, I did not. But my friend, Connie Filippello, who was in the Crisis Cabaret uh, Theater Touring Company that we had, uh, she was his publicist. Oh, okay. And so uh, she said to me, well, you know, Mick Card is a Cypriot. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, yeah. Uh, that's good. And, and she said, well, I'm trying to do something to get him, you know, going apart from Japan. And I said, well, you know, I don't know what to tell you. He was a sculptor as well, a very, very fine sculptor and artist. And so um, I did, I went to Hamilton Galleries for the opening of his sculpture exhibition there. And the next thing I knew, she got this, um, now, you have to understand, Mick Cohen is a fabulous musician, and he's all kinds of things. But he is not a giving, opening, fabulous, wonderful person to share a stage with. Oh. Oh, no. He refused to, record, uh, to rehearse because he didn't want to believe that I was the person who got the old gray whistle test. Because of my name, he wanted to believe the, the, the contradiction of that. So when I told him, I said, look, I said, you can do whatever you want, but I am going to say this piece of poetry and it's going to go in this rhythm. And he tried to mess it up on stage. But I didn't really care because I have been so confounded and infuriated by the jealousy of men about what it is that I do, that I didn't really give a rat's ass. I learned that night at the television studios to just go on through, pay no attention, mm-hmm. just let the bricks fall where they may all around. And uh, I watch it now and I think to myself, God, no one knows what a hard time you had doing that. But it's okay, because now they're starting to realize the things that I did have to go through to make my voice heard are the reason, I guess, that I'm still uh, remembered or people talk to me about, you know, what it was like and all of that, because 
I was there, as you said. I was present. Yeah, very much so in the middle of the whole thing. Uh, of this legendary, I mean, oh, so uh, I'm talking about legendary. I want to ask you: uh, Do you have any favorite fictional portrayal of of yourself from film? Now, uh, the fi- the fictional character of Mandy in Velvet Goldmine was based on you. Did you see Velvet Goldmine, and what did you think of that character? I didn't even watch it. Oh, uh, okay. That was Tony. Don't watch Cook. myself on television. I don't watch interviews. I don't listen to interviews. I don't. I have no interest whatsoever in looking at other people's interpretations of me. I have right. no interest, and I, I. I don't think it's uh, arrogance, and I don't think it's anything bad. I, it's the same way that I never collected a portfolio. I always believed that the technical age would come and that the photographs would all come back around to me. So I worked like a dog. Every time I was offered to do photo shoots with great photographers and to do this, and that was also promote David. I was never a model in my life. I never got paid in my life for doing any of those photo shoots. I think the first one I got paid for was Ola Magazine, and that was for the interview, not for the photos. But I got Lee that job because that's what you do, right? When you're friends, you make sure that everything that you're doing is shared by the people that you love and that you work with so that everyone gets paid. Is that Lee Childers? Yes, Lee Black oh. Childers. Oh, okay. Um, well, but you did, uh, you did legendarily audition for the role. Not the people get this confused a lot. Uh, legend is that you auditioned for the television show Wonder Woman, but that's not right. You auditioned for the for the TV movie, correct? No, I I auditioned for the television series, the Linda Carter television series. Okay, yeah. And um, legend has it that you 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 didn't get the part because you you refused to wear a bra. Is this true? Oh my dear, if that was the truth, that would be sort of you know. Truth <laughs> was. That Linda Carter already had the job. Oh. What happened in those old days was what they would do is some agent would have some starlet and they would get the job. Then the union, to make the union shut up and not complain, they'd say they were having auditions. Now, RCA got me the audition not because anyone realized that I was actually an actor and I might very well be able to do it. They got that so that I could go and promote the Midnight Special, which was the show which was coming on after the Johnny Carson show, which is why I also got the Johnny Carson show. And I had to have some local American event to get the Johnny Carson show. So they got oh. an audition for Wonder Woman as the local American event that I could be on TV talking about. And oh. then I could talk about the Midnight Special, which was coming on afterwards. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, that's show business. It's convoluted. Yes. It is convoluted. And of course, there was the guy, one of the writers... <laughs> This is a funny story if we've got time. Yes. One of the the writers of this 
dreadful. I mean, they wanted the Wonder Woman character. I took these incredible photographs that Terry O'Neill and Natasha Kornilov did the costumes. And I brought a live, unbelievable Wonder Woman photographs to them. And they didn't know what to say. And they had Wonder Woman in a, a, a turtleneck, a white turtleneck in jeans. I said, are you losing your minds? Do you think you're going to actually make a TV series that looks like that? Mm-hmm. From a fantastic comic book. Right. So the guy who had written one of the, I think there were several writers, but one of the writers was at the auditions. And so um, I had had this conversation with the woman about the bra. And I said, no, I said, I, I really, I don't think that's a good idea. And she said, well, she said, they're not going to do the audition if you don't put the bra. So I said, okay, come, give me the bra. So suddenly there's a knock at the door. And this guy, this writer, who like perhaps came up to my chin, came in and, and I said, what do you want? I'm busy and I'm getting changed. He said, I'm the writer. I said, you're the writer of what? He said, well, I, I wrote this Wonder Woman script. I said, oh, really? I said, what did you write before that? He said, well, um, uh, I uh, was one of the writers on Shaft. I said, the only thing wrong with the film Shaft was the script. I said, so you can get the fuck out of my dressing room. So that was another reason I didn't get the part. So uh, there seems to be this... um, Comic book, you have, it seems to me that you have a love of uh, of comic books. You, you once acquired the rights to produce Black Widow and Daredevil. Yes, Is that I right? Did. And well, uh, after the whole you know thing with um, Wonder Woman, I went to lunch with Stan Lee and his lovely wife, and uh, I told him about it, and, and Stan Lee was delightful. And he said, well, don't even think about it. Don't worry about a thing. He said, I'll give you, uh, you know, uh, the license to use Daredevil and Black Widow if you can get it produced. And I said, okay, that would be terrific. I said, I don't know if I can get it produced. So please forgive me. I don't want to make any promises I can't keep. I said, but I really appreciate that. And when I went back to London, I did photographs of Daredevil and Black Widow with Benny Carruthers and Terry O'Neill. And Natasha Kornilov again made the costumes and they were just fantastic. So it wasn't, we just needed computers. We didn't have computers then. So we couldn't turn our whole comic book uh, vision and dream into what we have now. But I knew, and I said to Stan Lee at lunch, and his wife applauded me. I said, you know, you're sitting on this incredible archive of brilliant film scripts and television shows. You must be absolutely just chomping at the bit to get busy. And he said, no one's ever said it like that. You're absolutely right. I've never been so lucky. All the work that we did at Marvel, all the work that DC Comics did, all that work. And I also went to Hanna-Barbera, you know, and sold Ziggy Stardust to Hanna-Barbera. I took David with me. Really? We would have closed that deal, too. But Tony DeFries and Mainman decided that, you know, I was far too much trouble. 
for what I brought to the table. And so they, they tried to make my life miserable, and they did. Uh, it was very easy to do that. I was a youngster. I did not like to be criticized or made to feel less than I thought I was or what, or that my value was less than I thought it was. So, um, yeah, hard times came mm. during, during those years. Hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I, I just, it just seems like, yeah, you have this vision for, I mean, I was also a big comic book nerd and I think that influenced me, uh, with my drag stuff, but that's a whole different story. You do it so beautifully. So that wonderful, the, um, it's, it's, it's where neon replaces quiet, well-behaved colors where, uh, round and curvaceous and geometrical objects become three-dimensional and fluid. And no, if true. you do that with drag, I always remember those amazing wigs, that the size of them. Yes. yes. You know, so they, they were absolutely brilliant. It was almost like, you know, looking at the Rio Carnival. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know how they design those amazing costumes and uh, people on stilts and, you know, that kind of street theater, which is so very valuable because it brings a smile to a person's face without necessarily having to go into a theater to enjoy it. Well, you've also, you also, you know, you and the whole glam movement influenced my drag too, uh, immeasurably. I mean... My drag is influenced by glam, by punk, by film stars like Elizabeth Taylor, by everything. But glam was was so important because life was dreary as a teenager. And so to discover that. But, you know, you've heard that a million times. I want to talk to you a little bit about your your ouvoir. I, I don't know. If, I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> Let's uh, talk about your your list of books that you have authored. And um it is kind of safe to say that you like to write about sex because you have a pocket essentials book titled Bisexuality, a book called Pop Sex. And then you also um, you know, mentioned sex a little bit in uh, your Backstage Passes book. But you also must like cats because you had a book called Catastrophe. Are you a yes. cat lady? Catastrophe. Well, I kept looking for um, an artist. You know, I kept looking, I kept looking. And then about 15 years ago, I met Rick Hunt on the internet. And we just got along so well. And for two or three years, you know, we josh and jive and chat and, you know, just really have a good old laugh. And finally, one day he said to me, he said, you know, I, I would be really honored if, if I could illustrate something for you. And I said, you're kidding me. I said, I would never have dared ask you. Are you for real? And he said, yes. Yes, I really would. And I said, I'll tell you what I'd like to do. I, this actual adventure happened to Michael and I, and, and it's about four cats. And I want to call it catastrophe because they invaded, well, one, the mother invaded, and then she got pregnant and had three more. And before I knew it, we were up to our ankles and kittens. 
and very happy about it, I might add. Mm -hmm. But then we did fancy footwork, which was Rick illustrating my poetry and lyrics. And it was wonderful. And um, so I, so then I had catastrophe and fancy footwork illustrated by Rick Hunt. And I said, well, Rick, I said, I'm starting to feel like I'm getting the better end of this deal, and it's not fair. <laughs> yes. Said, Let me start doing some art books of your art. How would that be? And he said, well, great. So I did Gaucho Visions 1, Gaucho Visions 2, and now um, I'm going to be doing FDR, which is uh, Fire Music Drawn, FMD, which is uh, another compilation of Rick's artwork. So then about a year ago or a year and a half ago, just as COVID started, my dear friend, uh, Loretta Rocks, who uh, had the first soul food restaurant in London in the 1970s from Harlem, the most marvelous gal who I just adored. Um, she asked me to write her life story. And I said, well, I don't know if I could do that. I said, unless we get a, a publishing deal, I, I don't have the time for it. I said, but I said, I can do all the interviews with you and I can write like, a 40,000 proposal, 40,000 words. I said, like a long article. Uh, I said, and that might work as a proposal for publishers and things like that. So, yeah, there's a lot of books going on at the moment. I'm doing Catastrophe 2. I'm doing this new one with Rick, Fire Music Drawn. And, and then I'm doing this one, Loretta Rocks. And I've got Lily Bounty, which is uh, an adventure story that I've been working on for a long time. So I'm I'm looking forward to completing that because busy it's... lady. Well, yeah. Well, you are too, babe. You I know. Always I'm, stay busy. I'm. You know, you have to stay busy. I mean, even during a pandemic. But tell us about being a roving reporter. So this was years ago. You put me in touch with Frock Magazine. And I had a wonderful time with them. Uh, how did you get involved with Frock? Is, does Frock still exist? I, I'm sure it does. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. You know, um, the guy who uh, edited Frock magazine, I think her name was Katie. Yes, I believe that's right. I, I think I, I please correct me if I'm if I make these I, I don't mean to make errors and I try never to do that about a person's name but um so anyway she asked me if I would do some writing for them and I said yes and it didn't pay very much but when you're a writer you know one of the things that you really like is the opportunity to write so whatever she would come up with or whatever idea she came up with of someone that I should interview, I was happy to do it. I really enjoyed it. It was great fun. I got a chance to meet you. Yes. Right? I met, um, uh, what's her name? Arquette. Oh, uh, is it Alexis Arquette? Patricia Arquette? 
can't think of it. Another one. Okay, well, I don't know. Yeah, well, there's three sisters, I think. And, you know. Yes. I, so I did one with her. I well, I guess I believe oh, it was that was David. that was Alexis. That was a yes. oh David. No, David. David is the older brother, and Alexis was the younger brother who who he was. Uh, he transitioned. Okay. Um, there you go. Okay. That's, I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was Alexis. I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have said no when you said Alexis. You're yeah. right. It was. Yeah. I couldn't remember. And I'm doing an interview with somebody called Alexis tomorrow, which is why I said no. I thought. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Oh, I love that you, I love that you, uh, that you are so busy and, you know, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I, I, I have to say, you know, I've done this podcast a lot, you know, me and, uh, me and Mark have done a lot of podcasts, but you were part of such an important history to me that I'm so glad, you know, and, and like I've said a couple of times during this podcast, so much of it has become legendary that to actually say those stories to you and have you, in some cases, set them straight is, is kind of an amazing eye-opener. So I was really looking forward to talking to you today and you did not disappoint. You're a great interview. Is there anything else you want to promote that you have coming up? you talked about all the stuff you have coming up. Uh, anything else we can see coming down the, the line from Angie Bowie? Well, I'm just going to, you know, sit here in the desert and get my work completed. And usually, as soon as I get the work done, I get a lot of really good offers to go and promote it. Yeah. So if I sit here long enough and work hard long enough, it'll all open up. And I hope I'll get to see you in some wonderful places where we'll get an opportunity to do this all again, but live. Yeah, well, you know, I'm down here in Palm Springs now, and it would be so much fun to to do some event with you down here. It's not that far away, I don't think. But, no, it's um, not. It's not far away. <laughs> well, thank you, Angie, so much. You can find uh, Angie Bowie on Instagram at Angie Bowie One. Is that correct? Well, and also, uh, if I may, this is something I will. Provide, oh yeah, sure. Because I could use some help with this, guys. Um, also has autographed books and all that kind of stuff available. So, if you would like to have any of that, please purchase at that place. And there's a link to through um, my Facebook page, I think. And I guess I don't know if Instagram has a link, but it's available at the website and um that would help me out i would be very grateful if you did that go check it out at angiebowie.net and uh, you can find me on facebook and instagram at heckley uh, at hecklina i almost forgot my name for a second um <laughs> if you uh if you love us show it tell anybody you can about drag time with hecklina or you can give us a tip so mark can keep the podcast going just find drag time on venmo or cash app Thank you to all of our listeners. And finally, a big, huge thank you again to Angie Bowie for joining us. I'd like to say a thank you to Mark. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you, Mark. You're so welcome. (laughs) 